What was your name? Cruella. Oh. Mm. That's quite fabulous. Cruella is the latest live-action Disney reboot. Cruella is the coming-of-age story of Disney's most iconic dog-killing villain. He spelled devil by his pronounced deville. Actually, Cruella is a movie about a cool fashion designer in 70s London who lives with two very cool dogs that she loves very much. Hold on, wait, does she kill any dogs at all? Not a single one, Jonah. What? It's a veritable dog love fest in here. Gross. If that doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. This is Galaxy Brains, and today we let our freak flag fly and talk about Disney's Cruella. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's personal style inspiration, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, we ask GQ fashion writer Rachel Tashton, who let the dogs out? Don't ask her that, please, Dave. I promise nothing! But first, as my dad used to say, you can't make an omelet without skinning some dogs. The fuck was up with your dad? He was very disturbed. My point is, before we get too deep into things, we need to engage our logic brain. Here we go! Hear ye, hear ye. There be spoilers here. <laughs> if you haven't watched Cruella and don't want its many tasty morsels of plot weirdness spoiled for you, go ahead and hit the old pause button. I promise not to judge you. At least not to your face. Oh! Okay, great. Now we can talk about all the six sword fights in Kung Fu. Hey, Dave, are you sure you're not just looking at your notes for the Christian Bale movie Equilibrium? Oh, um, yes. <laughs> Shit, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Cruella is a prequel to the Disney animated classic 101 Dalmatians and is the third live action film based on that cartoon. There are actually no sword fights at all, just a battle of wits between Emma Stone's meek but secretly mighty aspiring designer Estella and Emma Thompson as the nefarious fashion icon The Baroness. How does sweet little Estella go from playing hopscotch and twiddling her thumbs to fantasizing about skinning dogs and changing her name to something slightly more on the nose? Well, to put it bluntly, she watches her mom get murdered by a pack of rabid Dalmatians. What? This happens in the movie. They went even further than Pixar with this one. I know, she fell off a cliff and drowned. Her brains probably got splattered all over the rocks. It's horrible. Make up your mind, Dave. Did her brain get splattered across the rocks or did she drown? It can't be both. Okay, listen up, CSI. I wasn't able to examine the body afterwards. The Baroness used her straight-up maniacal dogs to kill Estella's mom to hide a terrible secret. The grown-up Estella plots to take down the Baroness and replace her at the top of London's burgeoning 70s fashion scene. To do this, she has to transform into Cruella de Vil, complete with those goons you know and love, Horace and Jasper, plus two dogs that she doesn't seem all that interested in killing, if I'm being totally honest. So it's not a Chekhov's dog situation? What's Chekhov's dog? 
Okay, so Chekhov's gun is the idea that if in telling a story where a gun shows up in the first act, it has to go off in the third. Uh Uh-huh, sure. I've read a book. Yes, okay. So Chekhov's dog is that if a dog shows up in the first act of a movie with any stakes at all, the dog will most likely die. But this may be only the case for horror movies and John Wick films. That's ridiculously convoluted. Which reminds me that it's time to move on to Critical Brain. Jonah, I kind of really loved this movie. What did you think? I was so into this movie. I wasn't expecting to. I've always been kind of lukewarm on a lot of the live action remakes of uh, the Disney uh, classic cartoons. But man, oh man, was this fun and big and just it was just a huge movie. And I loved it so much. I had so much fun watching. Didn't even notice it was over two hours long. This is a long film, but it is a film that has momentum because amongst other things, this soundtrack is remarkable. They must have spent tens of millions of dollars to license most of these songs. It's like wall to wall music. Yeah. Needle drop moments, nonstop. Like I know that song. I know that song. And it's not just current pop songs. It's like expensive songs, Rolling Stone songs. I'm shocked we didn't get Gimme Shelter at some point. Well, they were walking slowly through the streets of London. Uh, That's part of the reason why I thought you would like this movie, Jonah, is because it really does capture maybe not the realistic vibe of, you know, the burgeoning punk scene of the 70s in the the UK, but it, it certainly does have that, the spirit of that. And I know you're a huge punk person. How did you feel about the fact that toward the end of the movie, Cruella and uh, Jasper and Horace perform I Want to Be Your Dog by the Stooges? I thought that was great. I thought that was a nice pull. As a punk person, as you put it, I was not offended by that. But this is a movie that's going to be a a really wonderful tool to teach children about punk rock. Because Cruella turns from a just a regular old lady into a punk rock superstar. (laughs) So this movie creates kind of this like alter ego for her that reminded me a lot of Batman Returns. Did you catch that? Did you feel like there was some Batman Returns in this version of Cruella where it's sort of like Catwoman is Selena Kyle at work with Max Shrek and then she becomes Catwoman at night? Buddy boy, I did not think of it while watching it, but hearing you say that now and thinking back on it, you are spot on, friend. Congratulations. What do I win? My admiration. Okay. But I do like that it did have that, yeah, Batman Returns vibe to it, but also how cartoonish and comic booky some of the side characters were. Big shout out to whoever was playing the principal in the beginning of the movie, doing the blot on her permanent record. I think that guy, basically, he was like a human cartoon, and it was such a great performance in the movie, and full of great performances. Yeah, this is a, a movie that has a lot of really stellar character actors, many of them from the British comedy scene. I have to shout out Jamie Dimitriou from uh, Staff Let's Flats, who plays the manager of the store that Cruella works at on the high street in London at the beginning of the movie. He's really funny. And then, you know, somebody who isn't British in a movie full of British people, who I think is great in this movie, is Paul Walter Hauser. The guy steals every movie. Do you know his car's called a devil? Let's talk about how Paul Walter Hauser is going to be one of the biggest actors of all time. I think he is so incredible every time he shows up in anything. Paul Walter Hauser is doing Bob Hoskins Resurrected. How is that an apostrophe? It's like Bob Hoskins from the movie Hook. And I was just enamored with it the entire time. He was having so much fun with it. And I love that performance. Maybe the best actor in this entire movie is Emma Thompson. 
can do comedy, can do drama, the most versatile performer of her generation, I think. And, and in the last few years, she's done all of these kind of arch, mean characters, even though she is kind of a likable persona. Here, she's really unlikable, and she's having a great time being the worst person in the entire world. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. She's never redeemable. Not once. There's one maybe conversation where she's almost alludes to the idea that she had it hard coming up, but like she immediately discredits any kind of faith you put into her in that moment. She's so good at being so bad. What's funny about this performance and about this character is when you think about 101 Dalmatians, when you think about the character of Cruella, essentially, Emma Thompson is playing Cruella DeVille in all of the other adaptations of 101 Dalmatians we've ever seen. She's just playing the meanest person in the world. And that's what the song is about. Cruella, Cruella DeVille. The famous Cruella DeVille song is about the worst person in the world. And instead of Cruella being that person, you just have Emma Thompson playing that character. She is the Jedi Master and Cruella is the Padawan learner. And she's going to end up being evil, I guess, but probably not because the point of this franchise is to make the villain the hero to subvert your expectations. And like I said, in that uh, Mighty Ducks episode of our show, where uh, John August comes on and talks to us about reboots, it is about subverting your expectations. Do you feel like this worked? That taking a character who murders dogs <laughs> and turning them into a hero, a thing that like you found good? <laughs> like, Is this a net positive for the world? I mean, this is a thing I think we talked about a bit in our Mighty Ducks episode, which is you know the elevator pitch. It's like, we want to do a live action remake of one of the characters from 101 Dalmatians. So I was like, oh, which one? Which dog? What cute little animal? No, we want to do it all based on Cruella DeVille. Fuck you. What did you just say? Get the fuck out of here. Cruella, the most evil person in the history of all Disney movies, more so than Ursula. Fuck you. I'm in. I want to make trouble. You in? I do love trouble. That is all it has to be. It's simple, but it's also complicated because the hard part is figuring out what is likable about those evil characters. Cruella kind of represents the the artistic side of all of us, the side that is not necessarily completely anarchic, but creative and bohemian and different, weird, a little strange. And it works. I, I liked her, even though she is a dog killer in every other version of this story. I was on board. I want to hang out with her friend from the thrift shop. The David Bowie guy. Yeah, the David Bowie guy. Yeah, there's this one guy who just looks like David Bowie. Does he ever even say the words David Bowie? <laughs> I don't think there are any like actual uh, musicians referenced in this film. There's a ton of music, but it's like it happens outside of the real way that all of this stuff kind of happened. Punk fashion is invented by Cruella. In the real world, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood kind of invented that aesthetic. The safety pins on the jacket and the tearing of garments. All of that stuff was from them. Punk was essentially, before anything, was a fashion statement. Music aside and the ethos that came with it eventually, Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood, that was a fashion statement and the music was just a soundtrack to it. Yeah, it was weirdly commercial and commodified. Like the entire idea of it was to kind of do the anti-Beatles or like the anti-boy band. The Sex Pistols were like put together by them. Like the whole idea of making this band and having them wear these clothes and having people come to the sex shop, which was Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren's store, that was all by design. It wasn't a natural flowering 
It was, we're going to make a subculture and we are going to sell stuff to those people. Exactly. That's why The Clash is the true first punk band more so than The Sex Pistols are. Yeah, The Sex Pistols get a lot of the credit and they sell a lot of the t-shirts at Target and Walmart and stuff. But but when it comes to ethos and actual good music, should I stay or should I go? it's The Clash. But punk rock outside of the kind of aesthetics of what Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood did is about class. It is about the way that the working class is taken advantage of, the way society has been gamified and you are forced to kind of be a cog in this machine. And punk says, you don't have to be a part of any machine. You don't have to be a part of a class. You know, you need to just be yourself or the working class needs to work together to have a better life. Class is a big part of this movie too. The Baroness represents a lot of the kind of upper class, hoity-toity, boring fashion of the mid-century. And Cruella says, "Mm, I may not be the richest or the most well-known, but I have good ideas. And I am going to work as hard or harder than anybody else, and I'm going to achieve something. I'd like to start my own label. Why don't we work together to create some buzz for this old rag that you continually fill with that old hag? Jonah, all this is great. I'm having a good time talking about this stuff. But this is a movie about punk rock made by Disney. I'm sorry. I love Disney movies. I love movies in general. I have nothing against commerce as an idea. But it's really hard for me to justify an artistic endeavor about punk rock and punk fashion that is the third movie in a long-running franchise. Dave, sometimes you have to rage against the machine and clash with the major labels as a way to get the message out. Jonah, that's fine. But this is still a movie. This is still an endeavor for profit. We cannot just separate the origin of the idea from the idea itself. Dave, when it comes to the two of us, I am the punk expert here. Do you even play an instrument? (laughs) Uh, Does a kazoo count? (laughs) You're fucking right, it counts. I'll say yes to that. Then yes, I think I'm pretty punk. One of my first instruments, and I'm saying you are 100% right about that, buddy, but you aren't right about Cruella. The spirit of punk is right there. It's right there. How can you be punk if your movie is a continuation of a multi-million dollar movie franchise? Because punk isn't about any of that stuff. It's about breaking barriers, man. You know, it's about challenging your preconceived notions. It's about doing it yourself outside of an established system. It's about creating with friends for the sake of creating. It's about democratizing art. What exactly is democratic about the movie Cruella? Let me break it down real quick. The Baroness represents the stodgy, repressed nature of commodified entertainment. Her designs are pretty, but soulless. Worse yet, they're all stolen from her mistreated employees in order to maintain her status in a decaying social order. She uh, also made her dogs kill that lady. She also made her dogs kill that lady. Cruella, on the other hand, represents the people. She doesn't sell her clothes. There's no guest list for her runway shows because they're outside amongst the masses. Punk fashion was about recontextualizing symbols of the ruling class. Okay, I'm starting to see it. Like the dress made of garbage? Yes, 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 exactly. Recontextualizing garbage, which is like also, I think, the name of an early Cramps album. Oh, crap, Joda. Look at your screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo. You've gone and figured out the new fall fashion. It's Galaxy Brains. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. I'm 
Homo sapiens have outgrown their use And all the strangers came today And it looks like as though they're here to stay When you're quoting David Bowie, I know something's wrong. Something's very wrong. Goodbye forever, Dave. Or at least until after the mid-roll ad. So long, old pal. Say hello to the spiders from Mars. Nothing, nothing, tra-la-la. When Jonah's done floating in a most peculiar way, we'll be joined by GQ fashion writer Rachel Tastian to figure out if we've really made the grade and Cruella is actually punk. Welcome back to the show. We have stitched, snipped, and sewn our way into a galaxy brain take bigger than even Emma Stone's wigs. Disney's Cruella prequel democratizes fashion and makes it accessible to a new generation of stylish savants, which is the most punk thing a movie about fashion can do today. So we've invited GQ fashion journalist Rachel Tastian to either confirm our hot couture hypothesis or talk us down from the proverbial cliff before the Dalmatians push us off. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is a real pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. I'm ready to woman-splain to you. You are, I feel like, the expert, the fit queen, the the fountain of knowledge when it comes to just personal style, but style as a concept. So I really wanted to have you on to talk about Cruella. I'm going to ask you an easy question, and that is, is Cruella punk? She is not punk in the original sense of the term, but she is definitely a descendant of punk. You're saying she was in the character herself was inspired by the music was inspired by the fashion. Or are you kind of saying that like the film itself, as opposed to the character was inspired by that stuff? Well, what was really interesting to me was that there's a very clear relationship between her character and her character's kinds of interests and her, her design style and actually many of the garments, there's a really clear parallel between what she's doing and what was happening in the 90s with Galliano and McQueen. Yeah. Many of the garments are actually referencing specific McQueen and Galliano garments. There's also just like a general kind of similarity in the silhouettes and also this sensibility of really designing from personal demons and pathology <laughs> that to me had a lot in common with those two designers specifically, much more so than it maybe had in common with what Malcolm McLaren and, and Vivian Westwood were doing in the 70s. And just so everybody who's listening to this who isn't into fashion understands, we're talking about Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, who were very popular, successful designers in that sort of 90s period, who were doing things that were expressions of their their pain. Like you said, in this movie, Cruella is designing around her frustration and her class envy and all of those things. And they kind of did that as well in real life. That's an interesting parallel because I didn't I didn't think about it that way. I think I, I looked at it on the surface and well, this is a 70s movie uh, set in the 70s. So of course, it's supposed to be stealing from from there. But you're 100% right about that. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like the shapes that they were using, they were not at all what Vivian Westwood would have done. But they were clearly in conversation with those things. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that she requests boned corsets, which is something that Vivian Westwood was very much against. She was really interested in taking these kinds of pieces of like historical fashion and reworking them in these more 
more contemporary materials. But it was also, you know, an expression of like freedom and a kind of like middle finger to the system and that sort of thing. So she was really interested in like making corsets out of lycra for example, whereas Galliano and McQueen had this much more kind of aggressive, abrasive, this really constrictive sort of stuff, which is definitely what she's interested in as well. We see a lot of the designing of and the, the creation of garments in this movie. And I think maybe one of the most bizarre moments in the film from a construction of a garment perspective would be when the moths come out of the dress inside the vault. Is that even possible to build a dress made out of moth eggs? I mean, if anyone could have done that, it would have been Alexander McQueen. I mean, he did a lot of things out of like very exotic materials. You know, he he really liked to kind of gross out or freak out his audiences. I mean, it is funny, like this movie is like both obviously referencing fashion history, but it also seems really familiar with parodies of fashion and almost like a cartoonish understanding of fashion history. I mean, one thing that I think the fashion fanatics who are are watching the film will like, you know, the hair will stand up on the back of their necks is that at one point she's in this vintage clothing shop and the owner of the shop holds up a Chanel suit and she immediately identifies it as a spring summer 1950 Chanel collection. And actually Chanel was not designing in 1950. She was in exile in Switzerland. What? And she came back, (laughs) she came back at you know I think a year or two after that and found that Paris was enraptured with Christian Dior's new look and it was not only in 1953 that she relaunched her brand so it's such a small thing but it's the kind of thing that I think a real fashion nerd and it seems like this movie is designed to inspire young fashion nerds I think I think the fashion nerds will will take a little issue with that do you think it was a joke that like they it's an in joke knowing that she was in exile in Switzerland or do you think it was just a mistake I think it was just a mistake oh I hate mistakes Rachel I hate mistakes <laughs> I know I hate mistakes too I mean there's a real mishmash I think of of references like you know the the store owner is maybe he's supposed to be David Bowie but from what I understand, it's like, are we, we're in the late 1960s. So he's looking Ziggy Stardust, but he wasn't in the Ziggy Stardust period. And also like David Bowie never would have worked in a vintage store. Oh no, of course not. No, he was playing skiffle music at that time anyway. Yeah, exactly. He was, he was wearing turtleneck sweaters and stuff. The thing that I find curious is that it is sort of like a jukebox musical, but for aesthetics. You know how in like a jukebox musical, it's just like whatever song, it feels right for this moment. Like it's a Glee episode or something. But they're doing that with looks, with trends, with popular aesthetics. Like they're just kind of throwing everything into the blender and recontextualizing it in a way that is not necessarily evocative. It's just good business, I guess. That's what it feels like to me. How did you feel about the fact that it's like mid-century and then it becomes very 70s and then it has this kind of like late 70s, almost like Debbie Harry Blondie aesthetic going on as well? Like, what did you think about how everything just kind of came together in one souffle? Well, it certainly felt kind of classic Disney in that regard. And so in that way, I really appreciated it. You know, this kind of like, we'll harness everything that interests us into our own narrative rather than attempting to portray some kind of like historically accurate narrative. There was like one part halfway through where I started to kind of fantasize about the movie as being like, Emma Thompson's character, the Baroness, is Reynolds Woodcock. (laughs) 
Emma Stone is the sort of disruptive force who is the unnamed subject of the infamous fucking chic monologue in Phantom Thread. <laughs> and I began yes. to wonder, like, maybe this is what's happening because there is a kind of, um, you know, a stodginess to the silhouettes that the Baroness is so attached to. Yeah, the kind of thing that um, January Jones would wear on Mad Men or something. Not completely dowdy and without color, but just conservative. You are in these worlds that are very distinct and separate. And the Baroness's world is kind of like the secret base from The Shape of Water. It's very kind of unpleasant and green and ugly. And then the world that Cruella lives in is bohemian and dirty and lived in and... It has a thrill to it. She is filling a role in the fake parallel history of this movie that Vivian Westwood, who we talked about earlier, kind of played in the real world, is the avatar for punk fashion. It's interesting to think about how, in a certain way, sanitized the clothing is that Cruella is creating in this film, as opposed to, you know, I was looking back at the, you know, at some of the old collections that Vivian Westwood would have been doing with Malcolm and Laird at Sex and Seditionaries. And there is, you know, a real disturbing aspect to her clothing that doesn't exist, even in the Dalmatian coat. You know, I found that to be pretty classical. Like it was very like mid-century, you know, 50s couture. Yeah, that's, I think, the thing that maybe we missed from this movie. I don't know if the, the movie itself was as unpleasant as it could have been because it is about a woman skinning dogs for a coat. It does seem as though, you know, the idea of fur, like actual fur has become you know, completely inappropriate. Uh, we're all kind of aligned and against it. And maybe it's because of 101 Dalmatians and people thinking, oh, you can skin as many lions as you want, but don't skin a dog. Well, what's interesting, actually, is that Vivian Westwood was one of the first anti-fur designers. You know, she's been a big supporter of PETA for a long time, but she's also, you know, she was one of the first designers who was really talking about climate change. That has become really the centerpiece of what she does with her clothing now, and also with her, you know, sort of public figure. I mean, she, I think it was about a year ago, put herself in a, a sort of like jail cell in the center of London and was staging a climate change protest. So she's still putting on these kinds of spectacles that might remind you, at least on the surface, of what Cruella is doing in this film. I guess that's really the dividing line between the styles as projected in this film is that fur as a concept is the most unsustainable, expensive thing you could possibly like use, like actual living creatures, fur, versus using, you know, whatever you have or, you know, something like uh, PVC, whatever like plastic or like rubber stuff that you can find, like artificial materials. Those are things that are cheaper. But there is, I think, an undercurrent of class conversation in this movie. What's Punk's responsibility to the class conversation? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely correct that in this movie, there's a sense that like this lower class or working class woman has this rage directed at upper class and like bourgeois values. But I guess the sort of missing link in this is that punk fashion was really, at the risk of sounding a little lazy, it was really this like predecessor to streetwear in many ways. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to think about it that way because there was this like excitement about 
quote unquote, normal materials and really accessible materials and also inexpensive clothing and things that that were made by hand, not with a couturier's eye. Well, maybe with a couturier's eye, but not with a couturier's resources. So that's where, you know, the safety pin, for example, comes from this, you know, interest in like, okay, what if we were to deconstruct this t-shirt, which is to say, rip it apart. And (laughs) rather than like mending it in some way, we make that destruction part of the actual garment. And you don't really see her doing any of that kind of fashion. Again, you see her kind of doing these really grand gestures, very in line with what was happening in 90s couture that owes a lot to Vivian Westwood and especially to the new romantics movement in the early 1980s and and what she was doing at Sex and Seditionaries, but is very interested in, you know, big gestures and expensive and rare materials. But this movie is also inspiring Disney to go out and sell kind of middle brow products tied into the film itself. So Rag and Bone is doing this like Cruella collection, which is expensive, but not particularly exciting stuff that's Cruella inspired or, you know, part of that that marketing campaign. It's very not transgressive. It's the opposite of that. It is the selling of the aesthetic from the movie back to you without any thought behind it. What is transgressive to you in 2021 fashion? What is the thing that actually captures that spirit that they're trying to tap into in this movie? Part of how the movie sort of gets in its own way or doesn't go quite as far as it could is that the garments are immediately beautiful. I mean, it's pretty clear that they are flattering and elegant and sort of breathtaking. You know, if you think about the sort of opera cape shape that she makes that, you know, the Dalmatian skins into, or this beetle dress that she makes, or even this dumpster trash dress. Those are all pretty classical couture shapes, even if, you know, they're using sort of unusual materials. But, you know, none of those things are really transgressive. What I think at this point to be truly transgressive is something that like, if you look at it, it doesn't really make sense. And it's hard to wrap your head around. So, you know, you see a lot of that with Balenciaga, which is, I think a lot of people think of Balenciaga as this infuriating fashion brand, because so much of what they do doesn't really fit into the traditional concept or the accessible concept, accepted concept of what luxury fashion or really expensive fashion should look like. And that infuriates people. And, you know, that's all by design. You know, that's what actually makes it transgressive. And that was really what Vivian Westwood was interested in. You know, when she did use fur, she used it in this really perverse and off-putting way. You know, she would trim lingerie set in really kind of hideous wolf-like fur and then put a cod piece on it. And there is something very sexy about that, but it's really difficult to wrap your head around that. It's sort of like body horror in a way. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that films, clothing, yeah, is like, is not really, it's meant to, to the appeal is, is pretty immediate. It's trying to be transgressive to an audience that maybe shops at whatever big box store is in their town. It's like, oh, that's weird. It's a dress, dress made of trash. Mm-hmm. Like that immediately makes you think of things as opposed to an asymmetrical suit that like has lapels that are, you know, like really big or something like something that would be bizarre to look at and would make people think twice about talking to you like that seems 
transgressive is the idea that what you're wearing is not necessary. It's like a, it's like a melted version of reality. Uh, another thing that I think is probably transgressive to a lot of people is androgyny in dress in, in the way that there's more fluidity between men's wear and women's wear and men, you know, can wear skirts on a red carpet. And Harry Styles famously did very recently. I think uh, quite a few other people have done that. Now it's really taken off. Is that a final frontier to you of fashion transgression, like truly breaking the barriers between what men wear and what women wear? Well, I think fashion is not necessarily in a place right now where transgression is a core value. I think for a handful of designers, it is. And that's actually why it works. You know, like people accuse Balenciaga, for example, of pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. But that's sort of the point, right? Is that it frustrates you. It's designed to frustrate you in this pretty brilliant way, I think. But in terms of the increasing androgyny of clothing, to me, that seems less about transgression and more about representation and more about acceptance. For example, Kid Cudi wore that off-white, that fantastic off-white dress to perform on Saturday Night Live. There were many people who found that very upsetting, but I think they found it upsetting. I mean, I would say maybe they would characterize that as transgressive, but I think that a lot of men who are playing with these quote-unquote gender norms are doing that not to be transgressive, not to be provocative, but to make a sort of statement about fluidity and acceptance rather than saying like, oh, I'm going to really freak you out by wearing something that is going to make you uncomfortable in the way that, you know, Kurt Cobain wore a little baby doll dress that he borrowed from Courtney Love. By the time he was wearing that, he had this feeling that when he performed, he looked out in the audience and the people he was performing for were the people he was criticizing in his songs. And so that was kind of his way of being like, okay, well, I'm going to make you really uncomfortable because I know that you don't want to see a straight dude in a dress performing. Right. Yeah. He invented the costume that people then wore to, you know, hold people down and, and, constrict the the free flow of information and ideas. But once it becomes a uniform, then it becomes something to rebel against, which I think is an interesting idea. And that makes me think about transgression, not just as a, a thing to upset people, but a thing that has, a, you have to take the context of the, the, the act. You know, for us, we might find the idea of Kid Cudi wearing a skirt on SNL to be, you know, okay, this is a cool thing that he's doing. And this is part of a, a movement around breaking these, these divisions. But for other people, it still is like we live in a world to me, like where transgression is a constant force in our lives. People are, are being contrary on the internet for no reason. People are finding offense in all manner of things. And for Cruella, even though it is a Disney corporate product, it does have an element of transgression in my mind because it is the they know their audience. The audience is the audience that has not gotten this kind of information before. This is to me like a great thing for young men and women, boys and girls across the world to see like, oh, I could maybe I could be like this. Maybe I can make clothes or I can be a fashionable person. So I think transgression and contrarianism are really subjective ideas, but I could be wrong. I guess my, what I'm saying is subjective too. No, I think you're right. I, and I do think, you know, thinking about Disney movies as products that are designed to be like templates for 
dreaming for for really young people. I mean, this is a pretty provocative piece of product from Disney in that regard. What would you do if there was a sequel? This is our last question. What would you do in a sequel to this movie? Because it's clearly trying to set up the story of 101 Dalmatians here. But what would Cruella's career look like going forward as a fashion designer now that she has all of the resources at her disposal at the end of this movie? Well, I sure hope she doesn't become like a direct-to-consumer Instagram brand. Because that's always the, when someone gets that big injection of capital, you always worry that that's what they have in mind. I don't know. I think, well, why not? Let's fast forward to 2021. Cruella is now an Instagram influencer and she's selling tummy tees and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, kind of wondered if she was going to fall in love with the tall burglar. Yes. Who seemed to have possibly like walked out of a Grace Wills Bonner collection. I, <laughs> I agree. But I think there is a blossoming romance happening there. And one can only hope that what they don't have in store for her is some kind of like, don't become a girl boss. I mean, that's where she's going. She is going to be the girl boss. That is the sad trajectory is she's not going to necessarily kill any dogs, but she is going to create a lot of really mediocre things and uh, yell at her assistants quite a bit. From a design perspective, she does have, given that the sense of control that she likes to have over her garments, it's possible that she could go another way and sort of be like an Elia, you know, really controlling, very private and secretive, fits all of her garments on the clients by hand. I could see that for her. Yeah, she's uh, becomes more exclusive and and more private and reclusive. (laughs) Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to promote? I know you have a very popular but exclusive newsletter that you're doing on a semi-regular basis. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I have what I would consider the Cruella developed newsletters. Um, It's made out of dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's called Opulent Tips. You can subscribe if Rachel likes you enough, basically. Yeah, you have to just DM me and ask me. Yes. And then you're on uh, GQ.com and in the magazine all the time. I recommend everybody check out everything Rachel does because she is one of the smartest people I know. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. So each week, as you know, we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Host Matthews has sent in his thoughts on the movie we talked about recently, Spiral from the Book of Saw. Here's what he has to say. Hi, my name is Hoff Matthews. Uh, I don't know if this is a weird take or an overly obvious one, but I think the Saw movies work as a really apt metaphor for life under neoliberal late capitalism, in which we all have to navigate a cruel bureaucracy that forces us to torture ourselves and or others in order to survive, but still insists that everything that happens to us is our own responsibility and the result of our own personal choices. So uh, that's my take. Thank you for listening. Holy shit, Haas, I love you. That is an amazing angle. This is a perfect take. I love this take. That's the take. <laughs> That's the take. I have I have no notes. <laughs> this is beyond anything I could have come up with for that movie. And if you listen to that episode from last week about Spiral, you know we came up with some crazy things about that movie. And this is <laughs> this is like wow, this 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 checks all the boxes of overthinking, which is what we love on this show. So thank you, Haas. That is 100% true. I feel like I'm strapped into a saw torture machine every day I clock in for work. (laughs) And I just want to rip my fingernails off so I can escape. So thank you. 
If you want to call in and you want to give us your galaxy brain take about this week's episode, Cruella, or next week's episode about A Quiet Place Part 2, or literally anything else that's on your mind, as long as it's not pervy, our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take, but just make it half as good as Haas Matthews, who really went the extra mile to give us a galaxy brain take. Gold star to you, sir. Haas, you have a decision to make. You could either feel bad about the destruction of the planet and the materials used to make the computer in which you sent this message on, or <laughs> you could just live blindly. We live in a society, Haas Matthews. I am going to become the Haas Matthews. That's the meme. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Jonah, do you hear that? Hear what? Exactly. Next week, we're covering A Quiet Place Part 2. Hey, when have you ever been quiet? Am I right? Am I right? Put on Real Housewives and you won't hear a peep from me. Boy, oh boy. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautham Shrikishen. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Freshdick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizik, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah Devil. And I'm Dave Deville. At long last, let's answer the biggest question of the day. Take us home, Bahamen! Wait, no, Dave, don't! (gasps) 